I would like to welcome, I'd like to start by welcoming James Stark and Penny Livingston Stark and Avis Rappaport Licht to the new school. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to have you here. James and Penny are the founders of the Regenerative Design Institute and the leaders of the Commonweal Garden, and we'll come to that in a moment. And Avis Rappaport-Licht is the owner of Sweetbriar Landscaping in Woodacre, and she co-founded the garden with her partner William Cambier 35 years ago. And I have a very strong memory of the day when Burr Hanneman and I drove up to Alan Shadwick's biodynamic garden in Covalo on Richard Wilson's ranch and met William and Avis, which was about 36 years ago. <laughs> so um, so we're going to talk today about the Regenerative Design Institute and its roots and its vision and talk with Avis about uh, uh, where it started. But the, the roots go very, very deep. And, you know, as I drove over today, I was just reflecting how deep the image of the garden is in human consciousness. Uh, I was thinking these are the high holy days in the Jewish tradition. And, of course, uh, the original vision of the Torah was of a garden and of uh, a man and a woman uh, in a garden, uh, in an Edenic uh, place, and how the great tragedy of, of human existence was being expelled from the garden. And, and um, so, so the image of the garden um, is just so fundamental to what it is to be a human being, I think. It goes all the way back. Um, so it seems to me in many ways what all of you have been doing is not inventing something, but rediscovering mm -hmm. some of the most ancient roots of, of how human beings live in healing relationship with the earth. So Penny, I know you've thought a lot about these things, but if you could start by, by telling us, what is the vision of the Regenerative Design Institute? Wow, well, the vision is to create skilled leaders that are deeply connected to nature that can go out in the world and help share that connection, teach skills. It's sort of an incubator, if you will, of leaders. So we run a number of programs in permaculture design and regenerative design, which is sort of a holistic system on how humanity can live in a way that um, works within the natural laws and natural principles. And um, what I've discovered in my work is that it's doable. Like, we can do it. We know how to grow food without chemicals. We know how to build buildings that are non-toxic. We know how to clean really toxic water using biology. We know how to do all these things. We know how to harvest water, infiltrate it back in the earth, recharge springs and aquifers. But we're not doing it. <laughs> and so... Why? That's been a question I've been pondering. And so the Regenerative Design Institute was formed to help start training people up so that they can go out in their communities and, and spread these, this knowledge. And it's evolved over the years since we've been at Commonwealth Garden. And because the garden is so beautiful and the nature 
uh, connection is so there with bobcats and foxes and everything, deer and mountain lions. Mm-hmm. One was sleeping right 30 feet from our front door, we discovered. Uh, <laughs> and for about a week or so. But, you know, just having that wildness right there is just this perfect place to also just sink into nature and into the wild wildness of the place. So, James, looking again at the Commonweal website um, and the Regenerative Design Institute website, um, I saw that the way you, you feature it, there, there, there are three keystone programs. Mm-hmm. Could you describe what those three programs are? Well, there's, as Penny was talking about, regenerative design and permaculture <coughs> programs where people can come in and in a pretty brief amount of time, these are people who have um, jobs and are involved deeply in their communities and can come in and learn skills and then take them back out. And then we have... Um, uh, a program that's for young leaders, but also we've had people, many people in their 50s, 60s, and I think 67 or something was the oldest, uh, where it's full-time, and they come two or three days a week for nine months. And that's an intensive where we combine the, and integrate uh, deep nature connection and learning bird language and tracking and all the skills that would have been present in nature-centered cultures and villages. You know, you need to know what the birds are saying because otherwise that mountain lion is gonna eat the, the child if they don't know bird language. So we're teaching these skills and re-inoculating and bringing our body back to life. So the, the full-time program integrates that nature awareness with the regenerative design skills. Mm-hmm. What we realize in permaculture it has this whole range of of how to um, mimic natural systems, but we didn't have the tools of uh, reconnecting with de- deep nature connection. But there, there was a whole movement that was involved just in nature connection. And so we combined and brought these two fields together mm-hmm. with John Young and Nicole Young and integrated into a, a holistic program. So that's another keystone program. And then we have... Um, what we learned out of um, regenerative design and nature awareness that, um, that and the challenges we face with the earth, everything we look at about the earth that is challenging is really just a reflection of the collective consciousness of seven billion people. It's like what's going on inside of our awareness and this is what it looks like when we have that level of consciousness. So. So we began to explore as we uh, have learning uh, environments where people would learn skills and design, but what they did when they went back to their community really depended on what was going on in their, on the mental level. You know, if somebody had an idea, well, I don't know enough and some story about that disempowered them, then nothing would happen. And then some people who've, who really had to demonstrate to the world that they were totally awesome because they thought they weren't, <laughs> then they create all kinds of problems out there. So we realize there's, that what's going on in our inner gardens are just as important to what's going on in the outer uh, reality. So the other keystone is uh, looking at leadership and in, inner leadership and inner gardening skills. 
So in summary, uh, permaculture, nature awareness, and the ecology of leadership, these are the three keystone programs. I mean, you do all kinds of programs. We can right. spend Bees fit in there somewhere. But, <laughs> but the, the point is, permaculture, uh, nature awareness, and the ecology of leadership. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has really astonished me in the seven years that you all have been here, seven now, is that Eight. Eight. Oh, my God. Uh, but <laughs> what has really astonished me is the unbelievable enthusiasm and energy of the people, young and old, who mm -hmm. come to the garden. I mean, you know, it just has... We always helped. When, when Burr and I and Carolyn Brown started Commonwealth, the vision was that the garden would ground our interest in healing the earth, just the way the Cancer Health Program grounds our interest in, in individual healing. But... We always hoped that it would do that, and it absolutely did from the start with uh, Avis and William. And now in this new um, period with you, I just, the you know, in these very difficult times in which we live, where there's so much cynicism and despair and what can we do, and all these amazingly gifted young people with master's degrees and PhDs from all over the planet, keep showing up to, you know, learn these skills. And every time I go up there, I mean, any day I go to the garden and it isn't frequently enough, I just feel it is a day that has not been, you know, misused. It's a, a day where my heart is just somehow opened in, in the most amazing way. And, and somehow... I know how we do that in the Cancer Help Program, but I'm always amazed by the way the two of you mm -hmm. have created uh, an eco-cultural space in the garden mm -hmm. that heals people in the deepest possible way. Penny, how do you understand that process? Of uh, the process of Just creating healing, a healing space? That, yeah, what... what how do you understand, in other words, taking these different things that you do, what have you noticed actually takes place with the people who come and spend time there? A number of things, but one of them, it's about having a deep relationship and connection to the garden. So we don't just plant plants. We also recognize and acknowledge these plants for who they are. Not what they are, but who they are. And the same with the animals. And even even doing construction, there's been times when we go through a, a grounding process where people who have never built anything before, you know, we did some projects like up at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, for example, you know, building an arbor, where they just got in this state of grace before they even picked up a board or picked up anything. And when they positioned the first post and we tested it with the level, it was dead on, you know? And so there's a process of how the gardens get installed. I learned um, from the first garden that you visited back in Point Reyes that I, wouldn't, I didn't want anybody working in that garden if they didn't want to be there. So my kids were not forced to garden when they were going to come. Sometimes my, when they, they, go like to, that. they say, Mom, why didn't you make me do this? You know, But I wouldn't do that because it's about the process and the energy of the hearts of the people 
and the souls who come to the garden and how they interact that then leaves a footprint, if you will, for the next people who come. So it's, in a nutshell, it's about the process of how the gardens get, get created even more than it is about the gardens themselves. And so sometimes, you know, if you come to the garden, you'll see, you know, things might be a little disheveled here and there and things going to seed. And, you know, I have to keep my ego out of it sometimes around, you know, wanting everything to be tickety-boo and all the plants have their marching orders. But this is not the kind of garden this is. And uh, one family one time wrote a letter to say that what they could feel is that these plants were being allowed to grow, not being made to grow. And, and that's, I think, what people feel when they walk into the space, that there's a freedom there, and it's for, among the plants and the animals to work, be together. Speaking of your place in Point Reyes, I remember just about nine years ago, just after I had a heart attack, and, um, and we were looking for the right people to be responsible for the garden. And um, we heard about you and uh, uh, actually through a beloved friend of, of, of both of ours um, and um, and my wife Cheryl and I came up to visit you and I was in, I don't know if any of you have had heart attacks but or know somebody who's had but it's very common that you're in an experience of intense anxiety after a heart attack so I was in this intense anxiety space. I, I think you probably remember this. Mm-hmm. So I, I knocked on, I the, on the garden door with Cheryl, and I said, hi, I'm Michael, and I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety, so Cheryl will talk with you, and I'll wander in and out, as my anxiety enables me to do. And it, we walked into this space, which was astonishing. It was, what, three-quarters of an acre, mm-hmm. something like that? Mm-hmm. And you had created, again, this actually Edenic this truly Edenic three-quarters of an acre, and there was like a stream running through it of some kind, and there was a bank of chamomile, and it was a sunny afternoon, and I went and I lay down on the chamomile bank next to this little stream, and just let the anxiety just flow out of me. And after I'd been there for a half hour, I was able to walk over and join the two of you and Cheryl in conversation and then walk through these incredible buildings that you'd created. And I just knew that we had found the right people. I mean, there was no question in my mind, you know, that we had found the people uh, who, who would do the garden. So, you know, mm. such a beautiful experience. So Avis, going back 36 years, you know, I, was, I, I looked up... Uh, Memories of Alan Chadwick by Richard Wilson. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it occurred to me that there, in terms of the deep roots of the garden, there are these roots in permaculture, right, which go back, what's the name of the guy in Australia who founded it? Bill Mollison. And Bill David Mollison. Holmgren. Yeah, David Holmes. And so I had read Bill Mollison's work, and the, the vision of permaculture, which we'll come back to, is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful vision. But the other roots are Alan Chadwick and mm-hmm. biodynamic gardening, which mm-hmm. come out of the Rudolf Steiner tradition, mm-hmm. in this case via Richard Wilson. And it's just useful to remember that Richard Wilson, who was uh, born in Los Angeles, educated at Dartmouth, where he met, uh, how do you pronounce it? Is it Ogain or Eugene Rosenstock Hesse, the philosopher? Mm-hmm who envisioned the U.S. Peace Corps, and his life companion was Freya von Moltke, 
Alan Chadwick's muse, who was instrumental in bringing Alan to his life's work teaching organic gardening in the United States. Did you know that mm-hmm. part? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how long were you up there at Covalho? Um I spent two years mm-hmm. working with Alan um, full-time. Mm-hmm. What was Alan like? Um, well, Alan was an amazing man. I mean, he was already in his 60s when I met Alan, and he was, he was an actor, he was a musician, he was a visionary, he was a master horticulturist, and he was... He just toler- he just couldn't tolerate idiots. I mean, <laughs> idiot is a kind word, and um, he just knew what he knew, and he wanted to share. And it was like he didn't even want to be there, but he had to be there. He was he was just it was his role in the world at that point was to pass on his knowledge, and he did not want to be there. And so if he, if you were there, you damn well were going to learn what he had to teach you. And he was a Shakespeare yeah. scholar as well. He was a Shakespearean actor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, actually, one of the things I did with Alan, I w- I, I'm also a musician, and Alan was a pianist, and he liked to sing, and so I brought a piano up to Covalo. And he gave, every Friday, he would give both Shakespearean... Um, he would teach sonnets, and people had to recite sonnets, and he would teach singing, um, classical voice. And he, I would play the piano, and he would teach people how to sing, and then he would play and teach me how to sing. And um, it was really funny on the way over here. I was thinking he would be turning over in his grave if he knew what kind of music I was playing now. <laughs> because for those of you who don't know, I play in a band here, and we play um, Irish uh, jigs and reels, and we're playing next Wednesday at Smiley's, and he would just kill me. <laughs> now, how did he come to um, Rudolf Steiner and biodynamic horticulture? How did Alan Chadwick come to Rudolf Steiner? Well, he grew up in England, and he grew up um, loving the garden, and he he actually studied in England, and then he went... Um, to Switzerland and studied with Steiner. With Steiner um, directly. With Steiner directly. And he also spent time in France where he studied uh, French intensive gardening. Mm -hmm. And then he um, went to South Africa where he, after the war, where he built many beautiful gardens. But Mm -hmm. he left South Africa because of apartheid. Mm -hmm. And then he came to the United States with, um, because of Friar von Moltke. Mm -hmm. And then he came, to Santa Cruz, and he was brought there by two professors, Paul Lee and Paige Smith. And I have to tell you, this very strange coincidence is happening. Exactly at this moment, there is a very large convergence of all of Alan's apprentices and at Paul Lee's house in Santa Cruz to start the Alan Chadwick Archive. Wow. And I am not there. <laughs> You're here with us. I, but I sent one of my sons as my proxy. Oh, wonderful. It, and I, I mean, it's just kind of an, an amazing thing, but it's after all these years of trying to get, because Alan never wrote anything, but he gave many lectures. And um, so they're trying to sort of bring together so that people can kind of understand what it was he was teaching and stuff. And I, I have to say that if you read his lectures, and there are some books out, Alan would make up words. I mean, he just—he would just—he would tell you about the revolutionibus, and you go, "The what?" And it was the cosmic forces and the moon and the sun and the earth and the tides. And 
he just create all these words so that you would break out of your own mind of what that word meant so you would understand it. And so if you read his things without actually having been in the garden with him, you'd sort of go, kook, you know, <laughs> what is he saying here? And yet everything he taught us was true and real. And you only know that after 40 years of gardening and you go, well, I'll be damned. That's, that's really true. Mm. You know, <laughs> what he said. And, and so it's sort of the ongoing experience of being in the garden. And Alan's whole thing was the garden, gardener doesn't make the garden. The garden makes the gardener. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you have to be open to seeing that. Yeah. I mean, you can mm-hmm. do the same thing over and over for 40 years, but if you don't learn from your mistakes, mm-hmm. it doesn't do you any good. Mm-hmm. So that perception, that intuition, that inspiration that you get from the garden is from learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, these synchronicities are so interesting to me because um, another thing that my wife Cheryl and I did together when we were, before we started the cancer help program, when yeah. we were, I would, my father had developed cancer and I was looking for something that would help him because it didn't look like mainstream medicine was going to help. And so I traveled around the world looking at alternative cancer therapy centers. And the two places that led me to start the cancer help program, uh, one was the Bristol Cancer Help Center in in Bristol, England, but the other was anthroposophical medicine and the Rudolf Steiner uh, Center in uh, Switzerland, uh, a cancer center in Switzerland, which we visited, Charlotte and I visited and filmed. And... um, and that was how I was introduced to Steiner's work. And then I got interested in Steiner. And it's so interesting, for those of you who do not know Rudolf Steiner's work, though most of you probably do, either through Waldorf Education, which is the way most people know him. But he started Waldorf Education. He started biodynamic gardening. He started the Camp Hill movement for right. r- retarded people, which is an astonishing, mm-hmm. astonishing community all over the world of these Camp Hill centers. And he started uh, anthroposophical medicine. And these are just four, mm-hmm. to say nothing of his philosophy, to say nothing of Rudolf Steiner's social finance, which is core. Mark mm-hmm. Fincer, our friend and colleague, who chairs Rudolf Steiner's social finance. So in money, in gardening, in philosophy, in education, mm-hmm. in healing. He was a contemporary of Edgar Cayce in the United States, Mm -hmm. and they had very similar capacities to read the Ashkashic record in some way, and some really profound ability. I mean, with Steiner, uh, well, with Cayce, it was extremely well documented that he could do remote uh, diagnosis, uh, accurate remote diagnosis. With Steiner, who came out of a Goethe tradition and and had all the classical power of of Goethe's work, Again, the parallels between the two and the similar roles that they both played on both continents. Casey was really one of the hearts of a holistic complementary medicine in the United States. Steiner created so much of integrative medicine in Europe. So it's, it's so interesting the different ways in which the Steiner tradition has moved into and connected with a whole body of work, both in the United States and Europe and around the world. And I was wanting, wondering with, with permaculture whether Bill Mollison knew about and was in any way influenced by uh, Steiner's work or whether, where, what are the roots of permaculture is the better way to ask that question. Mm. Yeah, he, 
The only thing I've ever heard Steiner or Mollison say about the biodynamic mm -hmm. movement was that he said they can come, but they need to leave their fairies at home. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Australia. He's a very hard-boiled, <laughs> practical person. <laughs> um, if it works, he's into it, you uh -huh. know. And uh, he claims he was born without any chakras. And uh -huh. <laughs> I'm with him. <laughs> and uh, he he really loves working with indigenous people, with farmers, with people who are connected to the land, who can't afford to just go onto a belief system. I mean, he really uh, focused on practical. That that was his thing, and so in many ways he's similar to Alan Chadwick, in that you know he doesn't like idiots and the same kind of thing. Like you had to really be, you know, ramp up to be with him and be very grounded, and then he would respect you. But if if any anything reflected of any pie in the sky, anything, mm -hmm. so it's sort of interesting because the personalities are very similar. I think of the two. Mm -hmm. um, but where the roots for him, from him came from was he actually came from just being so enraged at human humanity's stupidity towards nature. And he was an activist, and he was just so angry. He went back in the bush, created his own little permaculture scene, and he was just about ready to just live out away from people until he realized that wasn't going to be helping anything. So he came back out. And the way he views it is that he came back out with positivism and with solutions. And that was his, his weapon, I'm using air quotes, <laughs> that, that he used to, to help, you know, education and positive solutions to empower people and communities. And he's traveled all over. I mean, he'd go to these places in Africa, like out in Zimbabwe, where, you know, it's just there's like diseases and toxic water and everybody's, you know, kind of producing what they don't consume and consuming what they don't produce. And even there, you know, there was just export agriculture. And he believed that agriculture was the most destructive human activity on the planet. And if we don't change how we're growing our food, we're doomed. And it was more around things around um, growing food in drylands, which is California and the whole West, um, importing water and irrigating, overhead irrigating and and salting the soil. And he said, you know, if you look at every every civilization who's tried to irrigate dry lands, 100% of them have failed. Mm. And so he's come back out with this perennial systems and, try, and mulching and organic matter and trying to feed the earth and give back more than what we take from the earth and stop treating the earth like a, a, a biobank where we just can just take out because if we treat our savings account that way or our checking account, we know what happens. But with the earth, we've been borrowing from future generations, so it's more elusive. And and now he's just brought this really um, a pretty hardcore curriculum that's very integrated. And it's and it's that's what I love about permaculture is the curriculum of how it's taught and how even after three days of a training, people can shift their thinking into seeing thinking in more relationally with how animals and plants, you know, he'll call the animals the movable parts of the forest. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in agriculture, by separating the animals, which is happening even more now, if you are following what's going on with current agricultural practices and keeping all the animals here and all the plants there, it's a huge folly for, for the land. Um, 
You know what I just yeah. read today in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, I just sent it out to our integrative health listserv, is um, with the increasing price of corn, uh, dairy ranchers are, are scouring the landscape for what to feed their cattle because they can't afford the corn. So they are scouring things like Fruit Loops and marshmallows and all kinds of junk foods which become the foodstuff for our dairy cattle, right? And I just thought to myself, what an astonishing thing, right, that our dairy cattle are eating Fruit Loops and marshmallows and all kinds. and And because we want to put the this other fuel in our car. In our cars. That the cows okay. are eating the right, food. Right, exactly. Loops. Exactly. Yeah. And what's in cows should be eating corn anyway, so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what's not to like about this? Right? <laughs> well, that's, so. but that's what's, that's, you know, that's what's so exciting about being alive right now. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like we're a bunch of teenagers trying to figure out how to live here, mm-hmm. you know, because everything's up for grabs, you know, we're trying to sort it all out. But I just, you know, going back to Bill, he, he was, you know, I, he had the same rigor because he looks at people who are starving and he knows that that technology can feed them. Right. And so he has a big bugaboo about America, you know, like he, because he just, he just wants everyone to be going there and really creating solutions to where, where it matters the most. And I think that's, um, and so he, he, his roots, as Penny was saying, really came out, he was a logger and a fisherman and he did all this stuff. So he came out of kind of like the ground. I don't think he acted. He used to capture poisonous snakes in Australia and get their venom for some medicine to, you know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of roots, James, you grew up on a, a farm, a family farm in Canada, right? Yeah. Yeah, tell us about the farm. Oh, God. I've been just thinking about that uh, lately. Um, yeah, my ancestors came over from Scotland in uh, 1839. They were part of that wave when, when all of a sudden the Scottish landowners decided it wasn't um, to their economic advantage to have all of these peasant farmers on their lands, and they could make more money on sheep mm. and, and get the wool down to, to London. So they just threw tens of thousands of people off the land. And my ancestors were one of those families who ended up destitute in Edinburgh and got on the boat and came over and started a farm and uh, built two stone houses. And uh, so I grew up on, uh, with sheep and cattle and very traditional grain and all that. Grain How big a farm? Uh, 200 acres. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They got 100 and then it was, they, they at that time, the agriculture and the family farm could was was economically viable, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, but then over from from at that point, and then there was just a gradual degradation of the uh, the family farm as a viable entity. You know that that to have a family who are actually generating food for their community, and um, so when it got to my father's generation. Um, he had to work full-time in General Motors mm-hmm. as well as work full-time as a farmer. So he did 30 years of swing shifts, two weeks days, two weeks nights, mm-hmm. so he could farm and then and during the day and then work in the factory at night mm-hmm. to keep, that, to keep the, the attachment to the family farm, it, which is, goes so deep with 
with cultures that are connected to place mm -hmm. and to not want to let it go. Right. So I grew up, um, you know, I'm still processing the grief around that, where we grew up, where all the family farms in our whole area, one by one, as, as, as a child, I would go to the farm sales mm -hmm. where they, you know, the family would be huddled over in a corner with mm -hmm. all their best friends around them as the auctioneer was auctioning everything off. Yeah. And I thought it was great. It was exciting as a teenager. But it wasn't until I was in my 60s that I realized, oh my God, that's, I grew up in that ecology of grief for a generation who finally had to let go of their traditions. Yeah. So that's, you know, so what's really exciting now is the rebirth. It's kind of like we went into this, this uh, you know, the darkness of families and growing food for villages and communities. And then now it's the, like the rebirth of going back when we realize that industrial agriculture is not going to work and isn't working. And if it wasn't so highly subsidized, it would disappear tomorrow. Now, Penny, you grew up in Marin, didn't you? Mm -hmm. yeah, in fact, Davis, you grew up in Marin as well. Yeah, so yeah. both of you did. Um, we didn't know each other, though. Up until this, <laughs> we brought you together. <laughs> now they're fiddling. <laughs> so, um, one of the things, Penny, that I love about reading Mollison's book and just understanding permaculture that seems so so more than right um, is that it's it's not just about gardens. It's a whole principle of community design at every level. It's yeah. about you know the garden design and then the you know, the homestead design and the community design, and your students have been all over working on these things. And I also remember a wonderful uh, friend of yours who came through to teach, who married a um, Palestinian woman, it was it? Um, From Jordan. Yeah, From Jeff Jordan. Lawton. Yeah. Yeah, he's coming back. He's in this, this month, he's coming right. back to California. And he, if I remember correctly, had been developing permaculture gardens in Iraq during the war? and I mean, he at he least... He was in Jordan, I think, oh, okay. is where he started. Who were the people who were... Because I remember hearing about people who were working in war zones yeah, he was in, in the, the war zone, wasn't he? He might have been in a war zone. Okay. Um, you know, another person is, in, is um, in, in the Palestine was Starhawk. Right. She went and, and saw where big old olive trees and whole permaculture farms were being, mm. uh, and centers being bulldozed right. there. And she was on the front lines in, in right. Palestine. So what I love about permaculture is this real sense. This isn't just about biodynamic gardening. This is about restoring, restoring the earth. In other words, it comes at a point that we're destroying the earth. And so this vision, which is so affirmative, that it's possible to take this new direction. And I feel that's infectious with your students who are looking for hope, you know? And I just, I just, I'm just so astonished by the energy that is created when you give, particularly this generation of students who are interested in positive solutions who go down after Katrina to work in New Orleans or you know or wherever it is they they don't just want to talk the way we did at certain level or some of us did I mean we did more than talk but they're very explicitly interested in 
what can I do? Projects. And yeah. projects mm -hmm. that, and so there's this wonderful fit between what you're offering and what this generation of young people wants, which is to really rebuild, recreate the whole, the whole, the thing. whole thing. And, yeah. and the beauty is, for us personally, is we get to ride that wave right. of what we call the bright eyes. Mm -hmm. The people, the people, you know, because we're, we're leaving them quite a task. <laughs> you know, I was thinking back when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. and because I'm preparing a talk right now, and um, I went back to like when I got, I was in La La Land on the farm mm -hmm. until I read Silent Spring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then it was like, oh, up until then, it was, my life was, oh, I'm just going to go and enjoy and live into this beautiful world. And then all of a sudden, uh-oh, there's a problem. And, but there wasn't, a much, there wasn't any signs of it that I could see. Mm -hmm. but, but this person was indicating there was. But now, that, per, that young person, wherever they look, everything is unwinding right now. You know, everything that we thought would happen <clears throat> is, is happening. And so the ones who, who, are, who are wanting to move through the grief of that and become the new leaders, we get to ride that energy. Mm -hmm. Let's know. just take climate change as an example. It's clear that we're not going to reverse climate right. change anytime soon. And so the only possibility is a flexible, restorative uh, approach, pragmatic approach to a shifting climate, right? Yeah. So when, when Penny, when you, um, you, you talk about Permaculture 101, Give us the kind of headings under which, uh, what's your sort of elevator speech about the five key principles or whatever it is of permaculture? Of permaculture. Well, where the one principle is is looking at asking nature, how does nature do it? You know, looking at natural law, natural principles, and mimicking that in our designs. Another principle is. Um, Relationships, you know, seeing what the relationships are between the different things that we include. Um, and, and it's going into not being just less bad, but actually be regenerative. So when you mentioned this thing about climate change, there's actually a system that we're supporting, and we've been teaching about this, and now we're getting the science behind it through the Marin Carbon Project, is that if we, through cattle grazing of all things, if it's done right, and it's what the permaculture, you know, we've been teaching this for well over 20 years in terms of holistic management mm -hmm. developed by a man from South Africa, Alan Savory. But there's a solution that we could actually be reabsorbing atmospheric CO2 and turning it into organic matter. Mm -hmm. And there's a statistic that this soil scientist has named Ratan Lal said that if we can increase the organic matter of this soil on all the arable lands of the earth by 1.6 percent, we could reabsorb all the excess atmospheric CO2 and turn it back into organic carbon, which is where it was to begin with. And that grazing and through deep-rooted, there's a lot of caveats, but through uh, rotational grazing in deep-rooted pasture, deep, you know, deep-rooted like native bunch grass type prairies, and um, using, you know, Anyways, I, I, to not go into the whole thing, but by using cows the right way, we can actually start sucking CO2 out of the air at this incredible rate. And, and if everybody, if all efforts were put to that way, 
into this system, we could do it in about 10 years. Ratan Lal is the name of the soil scientist. He's, he was the head of the Soil Science Association for many years. And so what we do is it was just so interesting because it, it's validating the very thing that Bill Mollison, what he would do is he'd find the people and the ideas that would work. So one of them was Alan Savory from South Africa. Another one is a Japanese farmer named Masanobu Fukuoka who really talked about how to grow grains and staples regeneratively. There's another man named J. Russell Smith who wrote a book called Tree Crops of Permanent Agriculture where you can start, you know, instead of feeding fruit loops, you can plant highly productive, high-protein trees like mulberries or oak trees or chestnuts or carob or mesquite, depending on where you live, that have this huge high-protein content for cattle. So you don't have to be feeding them fruit loops, and and you can get bushels of pods and fruit and nuts in a in a area that might take up you know a couple of maybe one square meter, and it's much more productive than than grain um, in terms of land use. So there's so many of these solutions, and in our trainings, we just bought, we just graduated 80 people in the last two weeks in two different courses. And, you know, we go over all of these very, very powerful solutions and we just touch on them. Like, we might only spend maybe an hour and a half to three hours on one subject, but we just kind of, boom, download the nuggets of what that looks like. So by the end of the course, people are walking out with this whole toolkit. Like, they might know how to run cattle, but they know this exists. They may not be able to install a photovoltaic, but they know not only that it exists, but how to make a decision because maybe it isn't, the be-all, end-all panacea. We talk about the embodied energy of solar panels. We go deep into the sustainability of a lot of these different systems. And they might not know how to even grow food after permaculture training, but they start to know that that what they need to do is look after the soil. You know, this, we grow soil, soils grow, soil grows plants. So they start to know where to go to, to begin this journey. And so what we say is, you know, take five years or have the rest of your life, but maybe take a year and really study one of these things and really get good at, you know, learning how to grow food or learning how to compost or learning how to harvest water or install a gray water system or anything. But, you know, learning, I'm learning medicinal plants now. This has been my journey for the last few years. And, you know, I've, I've just kind of spent all this time honing my craft in different areas over the last but that goes years. that goes back to what Michael was saying about this interaction between the European ecology and the North American ecology because you're dancing in that right now by going and studying with Suzanne Fisherishi and what what did the women know and held the wisdom in the European context and then bringing it and sharing what is the indigenous knowledge in North America. So it's like, it's really beautiful to watch the, you know, there's the, the air patterns and the water patterns, but then there's this, these information patterns of, of wisdom that are moving around the planet. So Avis, as you've uh, become friend with Jan, friends with James and Penny and, and uh, sort of been such a rich resource of uh, our history with them and so forth, and a, seen where the garden is going now and from your own experience since then. What, how do you sort of, from you, with your eyes, how do you see what's going on in the garden now? Well, first of all, 
Um, I, I just want to say that I spoke with William yesterday. Oh, and wonderful. I had hoped he would be able to join us because oh, he was so big to this. And he just really wanted to express, as I do, our incredible gratitude for you guys to, to take it because it was a huge effort to get it started and to build it. And there was a vision. And, you know, the garden has grown, but it wasn't until you took it over when you did and, you know, really made it the great teaching garden. And we're just thrilled, I mean, both of us, you know, about what's going on. And, and, and I want to just emphasize that the garden was astonishingly alive when you and mm -hmm. William were there. Yeah. And it was, you know, just drew us all into it. And so there was an extraordinary energy in the... Yeah. in the period when you were here as well. The blossoming, oh my yeah. God. Well, it was, was, it, was it was very much part of the community. Right. Everybody in the community was part of it. It was a teaching garden as well. And mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many overlaps mm -hmm. in, in what we learned and did and what, what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Alan was very much about the, the complete art of, of horticulture and growing and the technique. And so that once you had the technique and you perfected the technique, it would become invisible. And so that you would be able to to really know those rule those laws of nature mm -hmm. and grow mm -hmm. it so it was mm -hmm. within the universal laws to grow that mm -hmm. food and and what he did too was create um, you know passionate people who also went out and I think that's part of what you know came out of the initial form of the garden the Commonwealth Garden so it you know it's it's amazing you know mm -hmm. it's amazing and. And you have the people, and especially the young people, coming and want to know what they can do. And then we have the people, and what I do now is sort of, who are all those other people out in the world that aren't doing that, mm -hmm. but they have their own yards, or they have mm -hmm. their kids, and what are the schools doing? And I mean, can I yes. just say a couple of we want to <laughs> That's why you're here. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Um, since I left um, the Commonwealth Garden, I've been designing gardens and installing gardens in probably close to 300 in the last Wonderful. 30 years of, um, and mainly edible gardens. But what we mean by that is gardens that look beautiful, that people can put in their yards, but also produce food. And when I started, when I left here 30 years ago, people weren't that interested in it. They just wanted their pretty gardens. And then we would sort of insinuate Fruit yeah, no, we would insinuate like fruit trees, and we and then they would have fruit trees, and then maybe blueberry bushes, and then things or pineapple guavas that were sort of ornamental but also produced food, and then there was vegetables, and then there were herbs, and then and now it's like holy smokes, that's all anybody's talking about. But it's taken thirty years, but that's that's where I'm going, and through the amazing ability of the internet to sort of get information out now. I no longer reach one or two people at a time. I have I have a blog and I mean I had 17,000 people look at what I wrote last year and it's like okay what are they reading? I mean there's a lot of information but what are they doing with the information or is it good information or is it useful information? Mm -hmm. You know there's almost too much information. But you get you know what People are, you know, they're finding something, and there's ways to reach people. So who, how can we reach the other people? You know, and I call it the, you know, the other 90% that aren't doing permaculture but still want to do something. And we make it easier steps and, and simpler, and then they get 
bitten by the bug and it's like, oh, this is really fun or this is beautiful or parents tell me my kids, they, they harvested one strawberry and they cut it in four pieces and we all shared that one strawberry, you know, but they were excited by it. So that's, that's where I've gone with it. Wonderful. And um, I mean, there, there's more, but it, we're reaching thousands. And what is yeah. William doing? William's still landscaping. He's in mm-hmm. Eugene. He became, he actually got a teaching credential and started working in schools and found the bureaucracy too difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. So he went back to landscaping. Mm-hmm. So he's landscaping. What a beautiful soul. Yeah, and our son Sylvan, who was born in the garden and raised in the garden, grew up in the garden, um, is now an architect and designing Mm co-housing. And, um, you know, it's all still... And came back to the garden. Came back to the garden. Check out the room. Looked at the redwood tree. There's a redwood tree I planted when he was born, and it's now like... I don't know, thirty or forty feet tall, and kids climb. Well, we just had we just had a whole group of Quaker uh, high school students uh, come, and I think there was twenty, and they were all in that tree all at once. <laughs> Is that right? It's this <laughs> perfect ladder. <laughs> so you know, everybody doing what they what they can, mm-hmm. reaching out to whom they can, finding what works for you, what works, you know, what path are these people going to take, you know, what people path yeah. are these going to people going to take. Yeah. Sort of embrace everybody in, in the way that we can. How wonderful. But there is this, it's this moment where, you know, we've been, we've been saturated with the wonders of these little gadgets we carry around, the technology, the iPads and all this kind of stuff. And they kind of overshadowed just the amazing wonder of the creation we live in. Right. And there's that awakening, which, you know, the garden, and when Penny does, creates their gardens and you're creating the gardens or wherever they are, like, it's an, it's an unbelievable, you can master an iPad in a few hours or right. a couple days or something, but the whole living world that we have access every second, it's a choice. Yeah. And there's more and more people making that choice to, to go for the big show. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I didn't, you know, I sort of write and I sort of throw it out into the internet world. And I don't know if anybody's really <laughs> out there. Well, they're reading clicking, it, you right? know, they're clicking, <laughs> but are they using it? And I actually went to a party at Constance mm-hmm. Washburn's, and some woman comes up to me and she goes, Oh, I didn't know you knew Constance, and I get your blog, and it's amazing. I just want to thank you, and it always comes just at the right time, and I'm like, Really? So you, you have to, well, I'll do it another day. <laughs> so, so, for the record, you have to tell us where people can find your blog. Oh, okay. It's called Edible Landscaping Made Easy. Okay. Da, da, da. And while we're doing uh, websites, what's the RDI yeah. website? Regenerativedesign.org. Regenerativedesign.org. So, coming back to the amazing young people who are coming through the garden. Um, Give us a couple of examples of what your graduates are doing with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of them, they started a seed company. They just got married. Jim just married them yesterday. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Matthew. You just, you married them? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're... Um, their, their names are? Astrid and Matthew, mm-hmm. and they live at Solstice Grove, just mm-hmm. over the hill. They were down in L.A. She was an interior designer, and they came up and did a permaculture course, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, and then they moved out of L.A. and came up here and then met Matthew, and 
and now they've started a seed company. It's, you know, it's so amazing how how the turnaround from one reality to another can happen once we just bring our attention to what we'd really like to do. But you know, the you know Byron and and uh, Terraforma Farms. That's in Petaluma now feeding 900. Yeah, they people. harvest a lot of our graduates because <laughs> they employ them. That's great. Just about, um, you know, all their key uh, people are all coming out of the program. And in fact, Tara, uh, her initial blooming of the concept came out of the ecology of leadership mm-hmm. um, because she comes from the corporate world and was imagining like what this could look like. And now that's just like out there thriving. It's an incredible. It's a meat and vegetable CSA. And they raise animals. CSA meaning community-supported agriculture. Mm-hmm. And Susan here, you're connected. Mm-hmm. But what they're noticing, Richard you know, Wilson, by the way, started one of the first community-supported agriculture programs. Something I didn't know. In Kogula. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, with the people that were students of Ellen. Yeah. Yeah. But what they, you know, what they're finding there with uh, Terra Firma is um, that it's really. You know, which comes back to Commonweal. You know, it's like that inner leading from the inside out. Mm-hmm. That the farm, the farming part is is the easy part. It's about like when you bring human beings together, then what happens? That's and true. and we're and <laughs> and you know, and we have our own inner world that we're all leaning into and exploring and healing personally. But then you put a group of people together, and it doesn't matter whether they're they're going to launch the next iPad or they're trying to create carrots mm-hmm. it's all going to come out <laughs> and so you know that's why they want to have some of our graduates who are have the familiarity with uh, how to cultivate the inner garden and move through the stuff we're carrying and the old stories and our patterns from the past and that we develop these great technologies in, in our childhood to cope and survive the, the home situation but don't work as adults. And so when a group of adults get together at the farm or something, all that stuff comes out. <laughs> and so if you don't have any tools, then it, it gets kind of messy. So so they're finding that if, if, if people have the tools to be able to understand, oh, you just really triggered me, but it has nothing to do with you. It's I'm the one who's triggered. Then that can just move, allow the energy in these new green enterprises to move forward mm-hmm. and not get stuck in these old patterns. So that's a Penny. I'd, I'd love to come back to the your cutting edge right now, your learning edge, which is the herbal work. Mm. So tell us who you're studying with and what you're learning. Well, I'm studying with quite a few people, but right now I'm going to Germany. I'm studying with a woman named Suzanne Fischerizzi, and she's an herbalist that has been studying traditional European medicine, which comes out of the women's tradition. Um, A lot, it hasn't, it was damaged during the Inquisition, you know, um, prior, during those days, nobody ever wrote anything down. It was all held by the women. And so there's been a reclaiming of that knowledge and information over the years. And so I think I want to say something about lineage, because that's a big part of what the journey that I'm on, because there's a lineage that goes back, in this case, to Paracelsus and to Hildegard von Bingham and to um, uh, Carl, uh, um, 
Carl Linné, you know, himself, who has also studied plant spirit medicine, the father of nomenclature. He's a scientist. And so the stories of why and how he named a lot of those plants is in the, a lot of the kind of mystical properties of those plants are embedded in the names and the scientific names of the plants. I mean, this is one little nugget that I learned that I didn't know before. And um, so we're getting a lot into the uh, connections with the cosmos and connection to place. I thought it was going to be about plants, but we're having to do a biotope map of a 10-mile radius of my home, and I have to sit, you know, study all the history. I've been doing a lot of research, actually, on the history of this area and the earth forces, the elemental forces, the water forces, the mystical forces, and, you know... I have a question, like even with the bees, you know, I found out that that the queen bee, when she goes to make her maiden voyage to get mated, they all go to one spot on the earth, somewhere within a half a mile that has this energetic forces that, I learned this from the biodynamic people in Germany and, and from, and this is largely a lot of the work that Susanna's doing, is connecting the stars, you know, the mind, body, spirit, the physical forces, the unseen forces. So, yes, we're learning about making medicine, but we're also learning about all these other healing forces that are influencing. So it's, it's huge. And um, and on another front um, where this has all led me is we have now made a really wonderful connection with a local man named Teller Fenner, who is um, an expert and native medicinal botany. So we're going to be starting a program on native plant botany that He's an incredible botanist, an incredible herbalist, and he knows about native plants, and I've learned mostly about the European plants, and so it's going to be a broadening, broad coming together of the native ways of this, um, European medicine. And I believe that it's a time now where all of, all of our collective knowledge needs to start coming together and blending more, and even working, I've been working a lot with indigenous people as well, and sharing their worldview. People are realizing that we have to write a new story for the future generations. And so all of this work with plants and gardens and permaculture and biodynamics and all of this is really about, and indigenous people and studying in Europe and studying the native ways here, that's what this is about. It's we're recreating a whole new story, mm. and it's, it's big, and it's exciting, and it's now, and it's happening. Mm -hmm. And we're all involved in this. Sometimes how whether we know rarely it or not. do we hear such an affirmative vision? I mean, you know, ask yourself when the last time you heard two people sit and three people sit in front of you and say, this is affirmative, you know? Uh, the three of us have however many combined years of this experience, and all three of you are putting out into the world this incredibly affirmative vision. And as you said, Avis, you know, when you started 35 years ago, people just wanted pretty gardens. Mm -hmm. And now any, all anybody talks about is edible gardens, right? And, and, you know, similarly with both of you, you're riding the wave of the bright-eyed, you know, this incredible... I mean, I feel about this new generation. You, you've heard me say this. I feel this is the generation I've been waiting for, you know, mm -hmm. that this is the generation that... I can actually reconnect with because the generations right after 
mine tended to go a different way toward materialism mm -hmm. of various kinds and so on. And, but this new generation, particularly the young people coming through the garden, it's just like, whoa, I can really communicate. And, you know, I can learn from them. They're interested in hearing from me. It's an equal partnership. And, you know, mm -hmm. just it's an astonishing experience of, of connection. And it is a source of hope in a time when hope is an endangered species, you know. Well, and it comes back when yeah. Lewis is talking about and uh, the, the mentors that have been in our life. And um, the 60s for me, we went through the 60s, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, well, it didn't really quite take off. But then another way of looking at it is it was a preparing of mm -hmm. for the elders to hold the generation you're going to get to do yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know. And and so that makes a big challenge for us olders. Mm -hmm. Can we morph from the caterpillar into the butterfly? Can we become not just an older but an elder and what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And how do we develop these mentoring relationships because the next generation uh, have quite a project on their hands, mm -hmm. and they're gonna. I didn't have the the elders when I, you know the elders were telling me to cut my hair and, and get a job, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but now we can, you know, we can be all of this generation. We can be and hold space and anchor this next generation so that they're held, because there's a lot of challenges, like especially if you live in this area, like. I just had a conversation at the wedding with a young man who's running around and, and, and banging on doors in Point Reyes and saying, hey, we, what about us young people? Where, where are we, where's our place here in West Marin? You know? mm -hmm. And so we have places. We have, like, how can we hold them? Because they're, they're going to be uh, looking after um, preserving and, and creating a place for their children and their grandchildren. And so they don't have much of a place to stand on. You know, we've been yeah. lucky to yeah. be able to establish uh, all these the centers when the going, you know, when that was possible. Now, you know, it's harder. So, yeah, so it's a challenge of how to, how to be mentoring. For us to be mentoring, mm -hmm. well, I want to. I want to also acknowledge one thing that I didn't think get got skipped over a little bit, and it has very much to do with this lineage of the connection to Alan Chadwick, mm -hmm. because this garden is also connected to the UC Farm and Garden in Santa Cruz, and to the Garden Live Power Farm in Covalo, and to the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, which used to be the Fairlawns Institute, and other, at Green Gulch Farm. They're you know, all. We're all, yeah. We're, they're all Chadwick. They're all Chadwick, and so what was really awesome was coming and seeing certain plants that are almost like signature plants that mm. we've Mm. inherited from the people planting these gardens and people connected to Chadwick like Sarah has helped me figure out what kind of what kind of roses are these anyway well here's something really funny because you're talking about the herbs and and I said Alan would teach us Shakespeare and he would recite and he would say things like in the infant rind of this small flower poison has residence and medicine power and that's how he would teach it. Wow. And so we would learn about that through Shakespeare, because Shakespeare is completely filled with all these references to plants and herbs and the sonnet. And then, and then we would talk about 
all the medicinal powers of herbs and how to grow them and when to grow them and their relationship to the garden and the health of the garden and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's all there. So. And we don't go through a day without loving and appreciating what you left us. Oh, that we got to start not with I, that doorway that you see in I, the That doorway. You guys have got to see these pictures. I almost brought a vase of flowers. I mean, I, I had them out and I was just carrying all these pictures. But it was a vase of pink dahlias and they were grown in Covalo and I've been growing them for the last 40 years. And I still have them, and they were Alan's favorite flower. And you see them in all the gardens. Hmm. And there's just a sign of beauty and wonder. And we still just carry them, you know, from garden to garden. You know, Let's like bring that. back to that garden. We need some friends. Values. Yes. <laughs> Our friends, the plants. Our friends, yeah. the plants. Penny, you, you mentioned, uh, you, you, you gestured toward Sarah. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge one of your board members and dear friend of uh, all of us, Sarah Livia Brightwood Sigley, who's here in the audience. And uh, Sarah um, is the president of Fundacion La Puerta, which runs uh, Rancho La Puerta in Tecate, uh, Mexico, where all of us go on a regular basis. And, uh, and speaking of people with extraordinary gardening design and permaculture vision, Sarah, just a, a tip of our hats to you. Mm -hmm. Astonishing creation at Rancho La Puerta and your vision—that's uh, deeply a part of of ours as well. So, I just wanted to acknowledge you, Penny Livingston Stark, James Stark, Avis Rappaport Lick. Thank you all three for being with us at the New School. Mm -hmm.